This year, as a church, we have attempted to stay on the same page. What we mean by that is we are attempting to read through the entire story of God this year. So every day together we are on the same page, hopefully, as we're reading through that story. And then each weekend we teach on something that we've read during the week. So considering that this is just April, we are knee-deep in the Old Testament. And you might think that kind of puts us in a funny spot when suddenly it's Easter because where we are currently reading is a long way away from the New Testament story of the resurrection. Well, a long time ago, there was a famous preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon who used to say it like this. He said, whenever I get hold of a text of the Bible, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus. And he said, I mean to stay on his track until I get to him. Well, that's a little bit what it feels like for us today. We are going to start in a book of the Bible called 2 Samuel, but I promise you, there is a road out of here. That road leads all the way to Jesus. So here's our text today. Here is our amazing Easter text, all right? You're gonna be blown away by this one. I would almost bet there's never been an Easter where this was the central text that was the key to what we're gonna talk about today. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 39. Here's how it reads. And Uriah the Hittite. That's it. And Uriah the Hittite. And you might be thinking right now, Jeff, I think you're having one of those moments. You know what I mean? But hold on, because what if I told you that this little phrase, Uriah the Hittite, is actually found within a bigger list of names? It's a bigger list of names that actually refer to King David's mighty men. And at this point in scripture, we're told that there's about 37 of them. They are listed like Abishai. We are told that Abishai, he once defeated an army of 300 men by himself with simply spear in hand. There is Benaiah who climbs into a pit one day, a lion-filled pit on a snowy day, and he lived to tell the tale. There is Eleazar, who on one occasion, he left alone on the battlefield because all the rest of the battalion had, had, had run. He did not run. He stayed. He fought. He would not give up. And it says, against all odds, he won that day. Literally, his hand froze to the sword. It is in this list that we find Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. He, like many of these men, is is a man of utmost integrity, whose friendship and undivided loyalty to King David is at such a high caliber. 
I think in part we can measure the trust that was placed in Uriah by the fact that we know when we read the story that his home was in eyeshot of David's palace. I mean, if you're the king, you at least want some of your best agents living right next door. So on one occasion, Uriah, we're told, was off to war. That's what he does. He's fighting valiantly for King David to to help spread his kingdom throughout the land. Uriah's away from his family. Some of you, even today, you know exactly what that feels like. Military families where you know what it is to be apart for for long periods of time. Well, I'm just going to cut through a lot of the details today. And I'm going to tell you that King David, who's still at home, King David suddenly sees a woman, he's interested in her, and he wants to know who she is. The word comes back, it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. The report is, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David says, oh, my bad. My bad, she is the wife of Uriah, Uriah, one of my most trusted leaders. I mean, he puts his life on the line for me all the time. Never mind. I wish that's how the story went. But again, I'm going to cut through a lot of the details, and I'm going to tell you that David chose to move forward anyway. And therefore, he stabs one of his most trusted warriors in the back. I mean, a warrior, Uriah, who is currently off to war, fighting right now for David's benefit. Well, Bathsheba is now pregnant. Oh, my. And Uriah has been away at war too long So this is going to get ugly, right? I mean, because now there's just nothing else. David is going to have to come clean about this deal. David is going to have to admit what's happened, right? No. David decides to cover it up. And the best way he can think to cover it up is we got to get Uriah back home. We got to get Uriah back home because that means getting Uriah back to Bathsheba. And we got to do that quickly because if he comes home, then, okay, the news that she's pregnant, nobody will be surprised at that. But the story is because of Uriah's character, his integrity. He, he, can't, he won't go home. He, his brothers are out fighting, and he, he, he's like, I'm, I'm not going to go home. David tries several deceptive ways, but it doesn't work. And finally, David resorts to one of the lowest acts imaginable. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14, it reads this way, In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab was the, was the commander. Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. David sends Uriah with his own death sentence. 
and it works. Uriah is killed along with apparently many other soldiers who would die in the cover-up. <laughs> Happy Easter. Where is this going? Well, think about it. Here is the story of a man who is faithful. That's Uriah. Here is the story of a man who is loyal. That's Uriah. You talk about trustworthiness. You talk about integrity. You talk about courage. That is Uriah. But it is as if all of that that he has always been is just forgotten. He's forgotten. David acts as if Uriah doesn't exist. And then David acts so that Uriah literally does not exist. I mean, after all that Uriah has done for David, it appears as though he is forgotten. But here's what we learn. We learn that even when no one else remembers, even when it appears that you have been totally forgotten, God remembers. If you're taken for granted, or maybe taken advantage of, or maybe betrayed by the very ones that you have always been loyal to, what we learn, God still remembers you. Right after this story in chapter 11, where it appears as though Uriah is forgotten, the very next chapter, we see God act. He avenges the death of Uriah. Why would God do that? Because God remembers his sacrifice. God remembers his loyalty. God created him, God loves him, and God remembers him. And then, 11 chapters later, it was the very first phrase that we read together, right? Uriah the Hittite, that is in the list of, of David's mighty men, but Uriah's already dead, right? Uriah's already forgotten, but when God made the list and he put it in his word, that's never going to pass away. God chooses to include Uriah because God didn't forget him. Here is the road out. God created you. And God loves you. God sees you. And today, God remembers you. The thing that nobody thought to thank you for. God knows about that. Those years of sacrifice that you made when nobody else was willing, he knows that too. Now you do need to find some trustworthy people in your life. We, it's described that, that, that we each need some people that, that we can trust, but the truth is, even the most trustworthy of us, sometimes we fail. And the truth is that even sometimes people will forget you. 
But when you put your trust in God, he will not. He will not fail you. He will never desert you. He will not forget you. Uriah may have been serving in David's army, but when you listen to the words of Uriah, it's clear he is serving God. And God doesn't forget. But now I'm going to ask the question that we really need to ask. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Have you ever felt forgotten by God? And maybe you're saying, yeah, that's the question I want to ask. Because you know what? I can read Uriah's story and I'm thinking, yeah, I can relate to that. People, people who would leave me, people who would abandon me, maybe it was friends, maybe it was a spouse. You're going, that, that sounds a lot like my story. And I hear you saying, God remembers me But my question is, then where was God when all of that was happening to me? She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. You ever played that game? God loves me. He loves me not. God remembers me. He remembers me not. The bad part about it, it's no fun when it's not really a game. It's no fun when it's really life. I mean, when things are going good, God loves me. God remembers me. But when things go sideways in our life and that one you were loyal to does stab you in the back, it becomes God doesn't love me. God doesn't remember I am grateful that the Bible does not ignore those questions. In the book of Isaiah, for example, we find God's people in a place of captivity. They are are not where they're supposed to be in the home that God had for them. They, They are in captivity in Babylon. And God is telling them, though, I'm gonna rescue you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm I'm going to bring you home from Babylon. But in doing so, God also makes this most remarkable statement. He says, but honestly, the rescue that I am up to, when, when I pull off this rescue, it is going to have an effect to the ends of the earth. It's not just going to be for the, for the Jews, my people. This is going to be for the Gentiles. All the nations are going to see my rescue. And so it says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14, this is the people's response, but Zion said. Now Zion is this little hill in Jerusalem. It's the hill where the temple is built. But not right now, it's not. Because in the captivity, 
The temple's destroyed. There is no temple on the hill of Zion. It's, it's, it's where God always declared that he was present and that he loved them and he wouldn't forget them. Zion said, Zion would represent his people, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God, I see all these promises. And you say that you love me. And you say that you remember me. But I don't see you, love. I don't feel you, love. I don't feel remembered. I know what I'm hearing, God. But it isn't a reality to my heart. How's God going to respond to that? Well, maybe in a surprising way. In verse 15, this is God's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Wow. I mean, God goes straight to a most powerful picture of affection. I mean, if you were to ask us, hey, give me some of the best examples of what love looks like, we, we would pick a mom who, who has a newborn baby. Do, do you notice they are, they are wrestling with God? We, we hear the words that you're saying, but, but God, we don't, we don't feel that you've remembered us. We don't feel that, that you love us. And God gives them this picture that gives them truth, but it also goes straight to their heart. And he says, come on, think about a nursing mom is she gonna forget that baby and it almost right in most cases it would make people laugh right a mom can't forget a baby especially that's nursing right she's not gonna suddenly look down and be like oh what is this right no she knows she knows and, and there's even a physical part to all of that to where if she if she didn't nurse that baby she she would feel the effects of all that it's just this this obvious answer a mother loves her baby even though that infant brings absolutely nothing to the table at this point well a crying it brings crying at this point it brings being needed at this point but a mom has this incredible unconditional love well, most moms, because the truth is not every mom remembers her baby. Some act in a way that would lead us to realize they have forgotten that infant. I wish that weren't true. I realize that even for some of you, that is a part of your story. A mom that should have loved, but did not. Watch where God takes this. Can a mother forget her baby, though she may forget? I will not forget 
A mother's love for her child, it seems like absolutely indestructible. But God says, look, we all know, as powerful as a picture that is, there's times when we have seen it, a a mother's love, it fails. But God says, mine will not. He says, do you see, you see how great a mother's love is supposed to be? That is still nothing compared to the love that I have for you. you. You see that mom's physical love. You see her capacity to emotionally invest in you. You see how her very being moves her towards you. God says, do you know everything about my glory, everything about my faithfulness, everything about my nature drives me powerfully toward you. Now, yeah, you're just like that baby, right? You, you, you really don't bring much to the table. In fact, most of the time for you, it's take, 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 right? You, you tend to be completely selfish. It is not as though I, God, need you to complete who I am or, or add to who I am, but do you understand I can't help but love you unconditionally? I will not forget you. If you knew, I mean like you really knew that was true. A love of that magnitude that is given to you, if you knew that in your heart, what kind of a person would you be? And I think it's safe to say that perhaps a lot of us would answer that question. I think I would be a very different person than I am right now if I knew I was loved like that. But I'd have to know. I would have to know. Well, the good news is God knows that. God's, God's not done in his answer here because what God knows is that ultimately everything so far is just talk. And what God knows is if you only have words and not action, then in the end, you don't really believe that a person loves you. We, we know that, right? What really convinces you that somebody loves you is not just what they say, it's what they do. Now, can we also realize, though, that that can be really, really, really frustrating for a parent? I mean, an infant is draining for a parent. It is. An infant can just drain you. But can I go ahead and tell you that that infant that drains you is not near as frustrating as when they grow up and can talk? And they get to be six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you have made as a parent so many sacrifices for them. (laughs) As a parent, you have given up so much for them. Your, Your schedule, your life, it has been turned completely around for them. But here's the truth. They can't see that. They can't see that. 
Most children are of the belief that an adult exists to meet their needs. That's why adults are on the planet, they believe, right? So here comes this moment when a child asks for something and you don't give them what they want. Oh, they want it, but but you don't give them what they want. And suddenly this child is sitting, standing in front of you, looks you in the eye and says, you don't love me. And your response to them is, you little, okay, we won't actually say what, what we want to say, but let's say the truth. The sacrifices that I have made for you are invisible to you. You can't even see them. And the most crucial sacrifices of love that I have made for you is not even currently what you are asking for. And can I tell you, I think that's exactly what we do with God sometimes, right? We, we, we read the Bible, right? Which means we see words. We see what God says. But then all of a sudden we find ourselves in these moments and we're going, God, you don't love me. God, you don't love me, because if you love me, you, you, I, God, I'm asking you for that, and you're not giving it to me. God, I, I, why, didn't, why won't you do this for me? God, why, why won't you stop this for me? We see the words, but we're saying you don't love me, and you know, I think God's answer is you have not seen the magnitude of my sacrifice for you. And the most crucial deed of love is not the one you're worried about right now. It's exactly how God answers in Isaiah 49, when in verse 16, he makes this statement, see, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now we read that and we go, wow, that is a beautiful metaphor. I mean, how beautiful is that, what it says about God? And the reason we think that is because we know that in this day, that there were times that on the hands of a servant would be tattooed the name of their master, right? They would be identified, if you would. When, when you saw the hand of a servant and that master's name that would be tattooed on their hand, you knew that meant complete devotion by this servant to that master. But never, ever, ever was the name of a servant tattooed on the hand of a master because if that were to happen, then that would mean that the master is declaring incredible devotion to those who serve him, isn't that a beautiful metaphor of what God is saying? No, that's actually not what he's saying. Because the word is not tattoo. The word is engraved. And that little Hebrew word engraved means to do so with a hammer or a chisel and a spike. And all of a sudden, those people in Isaiah's day, 
hearing God speak those words to them. That they, they, they have to be putting their hands on their head going, can, I mean, that is crazy. Can you imagine someone out of love letting people take a hammer and drive spikes right through the palms of their hands? And our answer would be, Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Because that is exactly the reason that we celebrate on this most important weekend. The day that God himself would be stretched out on a cross between heaven and earth, nailed. If I am not mistaken... I believe we just found the road out of here. And it leads straight to Jesus. The Bible tells us that one week after the first Easter, there was a man named Thomas. Jesus appears to Thomas, and do you know what he said to Thomas? Thomas? Look at the palms of my hands. Thomas, look at my hands. Thomas, do you see? I love you. Thomas, look at what's on the palms of my hands. And I'm telling you, that is the final argument. That's the final argument because that's not just words in an argument. That is is action. So maybe you're thinking today, man, I I hear what you're saying, but I just don't know how God could ever love somebody like me. I don't know how God could ever love with the things that I've done, right? Because it hasn't always just been that I was deserted by my friends. If I were honest, I would say I, I am the one that at some point deserted them. It's not just that, that I was betrayed. I, I at times have been the one who betrayed. It wasn't just that they forgot me. There have been times that I've forgotten them. And I'm telling you, that is Thomas's story. He, along with those who had followed Jesus, when, when, the, when all of a sudden Jesus is, is in that moment of, of pressure, they run. In, in that moment, they They run for their lives. And Jesus would say to us, you're afraid that God's going to forget you? You're afraid that God's going to forsake you? Jesus says on the cross, I was forsaken. I absorbed the forsakenness that you definitely deserved, but I took it so that no matter what you do from this point on, you would know that God will not forsake you. And I think Jesus would say, if you can see that, then can you just trust me? Jesus brings an end to the daisy theology. He loves me, loves me not. He remembers me, he remembers me not. No, 
The gospel is the end of all of that. The good news that Jesus died for our sin, that he was buried, and on the third day, he arose. And Jesus stands and he says, remember you? Look here. Of course I do. And I will always remember you. I will always love you. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Even through the mess of it all, God never forgot Uriah. In the list of David's mighty men. And actually, there's an interesting turn when you get to the New Testament. You, you get to the very first chapter of Matthew's gospel, and suddenly we are, we are given what, what's called the, the genealogy of Jesus. It's, it's how the line unfolded to get to him, and it's tracing back through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's going down the line. All of a sudden, it gets to verse 6, and this is how it reads in Matthew chapter 1, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that wild? God doesn't forget. Uriah is a part of two lists in Scripture. Scripture that the Bible is never going to pass away. He's a part of David's mighty men, and he is in the list of the genealogy of Jesus. All right. So I nor you, are in the Bible on the list of David's mighty men. And I nor you are in the Bible on the list of the genealogy that led to Jesus. But there is a list that you and I can be on. It's a list that the Bible calls the book of life. Jeff, what kind of list is the book of life? Well, let me show you something that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, on one occasion, he says, I, I want you to help these women since they have contended at my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And all of a sudden, we, we, the book of life apparently contains those names of the lives who live the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news, Jesus died for sin. He was buried and he arose. And those who place their faith in Jesus, those who trust his death, his resurrection, their lives reflect a death to ourselves. And it reflects a new life in the love of Jesus that loves our God and loves the people around us. He says, those people, their name is on a list. It's called the book of life. And multiple times throughout scripture, this book is mentioned all the way back to the Psalms, all the way to the very last book of the Bible. When the Bible refers to our forever, beyond this life, the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us, that we who know him, we know we get to spend forever. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. It says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, those on this list, they will never 
be forgotten. The truth is, I am not on the genealogy that leads to Jesus, but I am on the genealogy that leads from Jesus. Because this Lamb's book of life represents all his kids, the sons and the daughters who have put their trust in Jesus that he declares they will never be forgotten. Their names will never be blotted from this book. My question today, have you ever responded to God's great rescue? Those words he spoke way back there in Isaiah, uh, he told his people, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out of ca- captivity from Babylon. I'm going to bring you home. But God gave a remarkable hint. He said, this is what I'm up to. It's a bigger rescue. It's a bigger rescue that's going far beyond just the Jewish people. This is a rescue that's going to go to the ends of the earth. And thank God that includes me. And that can include you. A rescue that brings us home to the God who will never let us go. You say, Jeff, how do you do that, man? How, do, how does that happen? Well, the Bible says we turn to God. We turn to God. We turn to God knowing that we don't, we don't deserve him. But we turn to God knowing Look, I, I admit, God, I, I have at times betrayed, I have forgotten other people, but God, really, that means that I have betrayed and I have at times tried to forget you, God. God, I know that I have done wrong and I am turning to you. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm turning away from myself. God, I'm turning to to you. The Bible uses a word, it's called repentance. And it says, when we repent, when we turn to God, and then in faith, I am trusting what Jesus did at the cross, that paid it all for me. What Jesus did at the cross means that it's not about how good I am to earn my way to this God. No, it's about the good work that Jesus did on that cross when he took my place. He became my substitute. He died for my sin. He paid the price. And when my faith is in what he did for me, a death, a burial, and a resurrection, he says, I'll hear you, and I will come to you. And his promise is that he comes to be with us, his spirit alive in us. He gives us new life. The old Jeff is forgiven. And now I have life in him. Maybe... You're at a place in your life where you've got questions about that very thing. Man, I, I applaud your questions. I, I encourage you to keep asking those questions. We would be honored to be a part of those questions. I, I want to invite you, a place that you can go to, to our website, heartalife.org, and there's a place there where you can ask those questions. That there's a place where you can, you can be prayed for. There's a place where we can begin to have a conversation. We would so be honored to do that with you. 
but I also believe that it's probably likely that among those who are hearing these words today, you know, you know, God spoke to your heart today. And today he moved it from just information to your heart. So right now, wherever we are, I, I want to invite you to ask him for the rescue. Wherever you are, I, I'm, I'm just going to model a prayer for you. I, please hear me when I say it's not about the magic words of a prayer. Please hear me when I say this is not about reciting some words that suddenly checks a box and makes you right with God. No, but this is a prayer that is a, is a, is a step that says, God, I'm coming to you. I'm trusting that it's you. God, I need you. I want to follow you. It's your heart. So if that's the case today, I want to invite you right now to pray with me. And you can simply say something to God. Something like this, God, will you open my heart to believe? Jesus, I know you died for me. And I believe that you forgive my sin. I'm asking you to do that now. I ask for your forgiveness. I need you. So I give you my life. The best I know how, I want to give all of me to you. I'm asking you to take control. You lead my life. I want to follow you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for not forgetting God, I also just want to thank you for every heart who listens in today. God, all those different scenarios, all those different stories, God, stories of hurt, stories of betrayal. God, some of us, stories of being stabbed in the back. God, and it really has often sent us down this road of God wondering, do you really love us? God, do you really love us? Remember us. And I thank you for words today. I thank you for words that, God, you spoke for the first time a long time ago. And just the miracle of those words still being here and that, that God, we could read it today and that by your spirit, you could help us to understand today. God, you took words today and you moved them from just words. But God, today, we saw action. God, we don't want to play the daisy theology game anymore. In the moments that are good, God, it is true. You love us and you don't forget us. But it is also true. In the days that are not good, 
you love us and you never forget us. God, I thank you for those who just now have, God, prayed that prayer, a turning to you. God, whether this has been for for 60 seconds or whether there are those who are watching now who, God, maybe this has been 60 years from now, for now, that they have followed you. They, they know what it means to turn to you. God, thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for not giving up on us when, when sometimes we acted. God, like little kids who whine, God, you have stayed true. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we thank you today for an empty tomb that changed everything. In the name of Jesus, I thank you. Amen.